be reading today out of Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And when they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, welcome to Sojourn. We prioritize the gospel here, the good news that we can have life with God because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And that gospel is a gospel that points us outward, outward to those who don't yet know that good news, and in outward towards community, those who do, that we can walk alongside with. So I want to encourage you, if you are here, that we encourage you to get into community. One way that we help foster that and encourage that is through smaller groups we call home groups. We'd encourage you to find one of those and to walk in community with other believers. Now, maybe you've not heard of the Ascension. It's not uh, part of maybe some of your traditions, but there's an Ascension Sunday that many churches celebrate. It's normally 40 days after the resurrection, but we thought it would be helpful at this time after just celebrating the resurrection that we take a look at the Ascension this week. So as we do, let's start by just asking the Lord to bless our time in prayer. Father, would you please again just uh, bless our, our hearing of your word, that we might be equipped for good works, that we might see and glory and exalt in the Savior who is risen and ascended and seated on high. And it's in his name that we pray, amen. Now, in Mark's are often overlooked. They're small, they're, they're one, you know, kind of space, and they're easy to kind of overlook them. But in marks can change a lot. So for instance, we could say he is risen. We could say he is risen. And we could say he is risen, right? And, and the in mark on that will change a lot. And, and that in mark, uh, I'm not a grammarian and, and I don't know, you, you can ask other people about this, but, but an in mark is essential to make an, a complete sentence, right? And, and depending on what that sentence is trying to communicate, the in mark will change. And so it's easy to see that this, this ascension of Jesus as kind of an in mark to what has been happening. 
Uh, it, it, but it can be overlooked. It can be underemphasized. It can be something that's forgotten and, and passed over quickly. But we need to see it as a, a finishing of the work of Jesus. And, and then we need to see it that way in the sense that it's actually a part of it for all the rest to have mattered. Now, 40 days of resurrection appearances, and it's easy to see, again, the ascension as maybe because it's Jesus, we're going to put an exclamation mark, but that shouldn't be done if we're going to see that exclamation mark as something separate than what's already transpired. We need to see the ascension of Christ very much as part of the work of Jesus, and I think this is why Luke includes this in his narratives, both in the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, and the book of Acts. Luke includes the ascension, the lifting up of Jesus, and it's worthy of examining because we need to know that Jesus' ascension is, is vital for his disciples. It's vital for their commission and to their ongoing lives until his return. So Luke does this. He recalls this for us, uh, the 40 days after Jesus' bodily resurrection, and, and he tells us, he moves us in this narrative from, from a question to a commission to his ascension, Jesus' ascension. Now, now, big events had led up to this point where we find ourselves uh, when we look at Acts chapter 1. Paul summarizes it briefly, and I'll just go through this with you in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says that Jesus had died for sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised according to the scriptures on the third day, and then he appeared. And, and, and those simple statements are an overwhelming reality, something that believers should never get over. Think about those again. Jesus died and was buried, and then he was raised again, and then he appeared. And it goes on to say that not only did he appear to just the few, but over 500 people saw his bodily appearance after he had gone into the tomb dead. An overwhelming thought. Jesus was delivered, it says in Romans, for our sins, raised for our justification. So if you're in Christ, Jesus was delivered for your sins, and he was raised for your justification. You can be made right in the sight of God because of that work of Jesus on your behalf. So sinners from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation can get in on this justification by faith in Jesus. That's why Paul said, when he said that in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I'm going to deliver this over to you, what is of first importance. That is of first importance, those details. But Jesus wasn't just resurrected, he appeared. And in Acts, that's going to be an important thing. It says in Acts uh, verse 3, right, he's appearing, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So he's, his appearance is important to, to not only give them proof of his resurrection, because who gets crucified goes into a tomb and comes back out again? Nobody. He, lots of people were crucified, lots of people were buried, none came out again, except this one. And even the disciples are having a hard time with this, and so he appears over the course of 40 days to, to kind of prove himself. I'm here, I did it, I overcame even death. And so here he is, and he's also teaching them. Now, initially, when Jesus shows up in bodily form after having been put in a tomb, where the disciples, they took part, they, could, they knew the, the reality of his death. And so when he appears again, it kind of, it messes them up a little bit. And they are initially, they have a lot of fear in them and doubts. You think of Thomas's story, but he was probably just part of what the, all the rest of them doubted. And so Jesus, when he appears to them, he has to say, peace be with you, because they're scared. And, and they're also doubting, so he has to say, hey, see, look, look. 
And, and hey, by the way, do you have anything to eat? You know, so he has to prove some things to them because they have fear and they have doubt. And so he spends 40 days providing his disciples with the proof of his resurrection, which is vital to them individually, but vital to them that they might go as they're going to be, as the New Testament is going to say that the the church is built on the foundation of these apostles. It's vital that they be completely convinced that Jesus' resurrection actually happened and that he have appeared before them and then he's teaching them, again, giving them vital information, vital teaching to be foundations to the church as it's to go forward. So he teaches them and it says that he teaches them about the kingdom of God. That is God's reign and God's rule on this earth and it leads them to question and perhaps it leads them to this question at maybe their last conversation. Verse 6. So when they'd come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now some commentators are really, really hard on the disciples for asking this question at this point. And one says there are just as many errors in this, as question, in this question as there are words. Perhaps that is true. I'm not sure that this is a great question, no matter how you, you know, spin it, but, but as a disciple who is along the way and haven't figured everything out, I'm, I want to be lenient and cut them a little bit of slack. I mean, think about the, with the disciples and, and put yourself in their shoes. Their minds had just been blown by the crucifixion. I mean, it had scattered them because this is the one we've been following, and all of a sudden he's crucified, which is not what you want for someone that you're following with your life. He was crucified. And then all of a sudden he shows up, and again, they, they're not initially overjoyed by that. They're, they're scared, and they don't know what to think. And, and in his crucifixion and resurrection, Jesus was, was turning their concept, their idea, what they thought of a Messiah and a king, upside down. I mean, just radically altering what, they had, what had informed their views of those things. And so their minds have been blown a bit. So they had to have a reshaped concept of the Messiah— and perhaps as that's being reshaped, as they continue to see Jesus appearing to them and teach them over the course of 40 days, perhaps they're starting to have this restored hope that he is this Messiah who's going to establish the kingdom of God. And so once they have this kind of reshape, they're thinking, all right, kingdom of God, and you're teaching us about this, maybe now it's the time to restore that. That they are confident in the kingdom's restoration and that there is a time for that restoration as shown by their question is a good thing. I, I think it's showing and displaying their confidence in Jesus as the Messiah. And yet we know as they ask this question as those who are non-Israelites, right? Like, wait a second, the kingdom to Israel? I thought there was more to it than that. Their question shows that their idea and their expectations of the kingdom of God needs to be reshaped too. Not just their expectation and idea of the Messiah, but their expectation and idea of the Messiah's kingdom and the kingdom of God. Their question shows that their expectation for the kingdom of God and for kingdom restoration uh, is a little bit off. And so they need some help in this. In verse 7, Jesus replies to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. For 40 days, Jesus has been teaching them things to know. Foundational things, not just for them, but for the church moving forward until the return of Christ. But there are some things for these guys who are foundation of the church. There are some things for them not to know. The disciples are to devote themselves to certain things and to not devote themselves to certain things. There are some things 
to not know. And here's what he's saying, that these disciples, you're not to devote yourselves to any further to these times that you're asking about. But instead, what they're to do is to trust those things, the times and the things that they don't know, to the Father who has all authority. There are things not to know, things to know. And the book of Acts kind of records how these disciples received this answer and how they lived it out by faith. Look in Acts chapter 3. This is Peter speaking. Chapter 3, verse 19. He says, Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, giving himself to gospel proclamation, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Peter, going out with the gospel, is content to say there is a time that is coming. He doesn't know the time, he just says until that time. He's content. He's received this from Jesus. There are some things for him not to know. And so when he goes, he says, there will be a time of restoring of these things. And that's kind of where he leaves it. He's content that there is a time is certain. The exact time of that time, not known by Peter. And he takes that upon himself as part of the easy burden and light yoke of Jesus. And he goes on and is faithful to what the Lord has revealed to him. So Peter leads it at that by faith. He entrusts that time to the Father, and the other disciples do that well, and so do all disciples who follow in their footsteps. There are some things for us to know, and there are some things for us not to know. Here's one not to know. The time. Uh, Deuteronomy, our favorite book, so we've got to go back to it every now and then, right? Like, we'll be back there next week. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord, but things revealed, they belong to us. Disciples are those who need to be content to know that, that there are things that are not for us. We need to be content with the things that are, that are revealed to us. One theologian said it this way, we must be desirous to learn so far as our heavenly master doth teach us. But as for such things as he will have us ignorant of, let none be so bold as to inquire after them that we may be wise with sobriety. Therefore, so often as we are vexed with this foolish desire of knowing more than we ought, let us call to mind this saying of Christ, it is not for you to know. It is not for you to know is a receiving of the authority of God, a receiving of the authority of Christ. It's a matter of faith for disciples to entrust the things that are not revealed to us, that are not for us to know, to entrust those things to the one who is authoritative, the one who has all things and holds all things. How much time and confusion and speculation would be spared in our lives if we just received this saying by faith? Specifically, even about that time. How much time is wasted trying to figure out that time? When Jesus said, very directly, it is not for you to know. And Peter and the disciples, what do they do? They go about gospel proclamation, gospel demonstration, and just say there isn't until. Do we not already have more than enough to occupy our hearts and our minds in the things that have been revealed to us? <laughs> we have more than enough in this little droplet from the mind of God in the word in front of us to, to occupy us with the thoughts that are way higher than us about who God is. We have more than enough revealed to us in this word about what we need to be doing that we're already not doing than to go to the things that he has not revealed to us and, and spend our time there. The things revealed belong to us. 
The things that are not revealed do not belong to us, and it might not be for us to know. So we are to give our lives to learning and obeying and living out the things that have been revealed. The rest, the unknown, is to be entrusted to the Father. It is not for you to know. That is a matter of faith. Speculation about those things that are not for us to know, that have not been revealed, seems not only imprudent, but to be a a faith declaration. That is a lack of faith that we can entrust those rightly to the Father. So the disciples here to their question, they're not given a time in response to it. Instead, they're given a commission. When Jesus moves them from their question to his commission, the things that he wants them to be concerned with, we find that in verse 8. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, maybe their question wasn't great, but Jesus isn't harsh with them. You notice how gentle he has been in his response. And notice that he doesn't sideline them. Like, guys, I've been 40 days after my resurrection, which I already taught you a lot about the kingdom of God during my ministry for three years, and now I've been 40 more days after I've been raised talking to you about the kingdom of God, and that's the question you come up with? Get me 10 more, 11 more, 12 more guys, right? Like, let's, let's start over. He doesn't sideline them. They're so kind to think about, like, man, we're kind of in like that. Like, we haven't figured all things out. And to know that Jesus is, is gently doesn't sideline them. Instead, he sends them. He sends them. He, he sends them, and he sends them equipped with a promise. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. It's not knowledge that empowers their witness. It's the Holy Spirit that empowers their witness. He is their power. The Holy Spirit is their power. Jesus doesn't, we know this from from this passage, Jesus doesn't need witnesses filled with all knowledge. He has all knowledge. He doesn't need his witnesses filled with all knowledge. He needs witnesses that are filled with his spirit. And so he promises to give that spirit. This promise power, notice how closely it's tied to witness. And in Acts, the Holy Spirit's power is on full display through these disciples. These apostles, these, these foundation stones of the church, they perform signs and wonders for the purpose of gospel witness, for the purpose of establishing Jesus' church and expanding the kingdom of God. They showed great signs. And the kingdom of God expands, and, and how does it do it in the book of Acts? It expands not by soldiers and military conquests of, of land and people and just a takeover. It expands by gospel witness. But notice that this witness is to be expansive. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That is wherever, anywhere, all over. Think about the the grace of Jesus to have said, let's expand this. Let's make sure our witness is in Jerusalem. The city that he had just wept over. The city that he had just been in 40 days prior And that had yelled out to him, crucify him. And that while he was on the cross was mocking him. People from that city. He says, be my witnesses there. How kind of Jesus. Samaria? Are we sure? Because we wanted to restore the kingdom to Israel. Are we sure we want Samaritans in on this? Ends of the earth? Those who have been the enemies of the people of God? Yes. And in a sense, this commission that Jesus sends them on is is a table of contents of sorts for the rest of the book of Acts. In chapters 1 through 7, you have gospel witness 
in Jerusalem as they proclaim the resurrection and repentance and forgiveness in Jesus' name. You remember Stephen kind of ends chapter 7 with this great speech as he is martyred for his faith and trust in Jesus. And, and at that persecution, the, the church spreads out all over. They, they go to lots of different places. They move to Judea and Samaria and all over. In chapter 8, you see Philip, he, he goes to the Samaritans and he goes with this witness about who Jesus is and what he has done. In chapter 13, uh, there, then there we're going to the ends of the earth. So we, we have Jerusalem, we went out into Judea, Philip goes out to Samaria, and in chapter 13 and onward, this is where they're sent out to the ends of the earth, where, where Paul and, and Barnabas are sent out to go all over the place, to the very ends of the earth. Witness goes to the ends of the earth by people who couldn't help but speak of what they had seen and heard. They go out as witnesses. So the, the, the Spirit's power is seen in the book of Acts through them going out and proclaiming the gospel. They're not superheroes. They haven't been given power to, to travel at the speed of light. They, they've been given power to witness. And that power is an empowerment by the Holy Spirit, just as Jesus promised. I think particularly encouraging in the book of Acts is this witness in chapter 11. This is the church in Antioch, and listen to what it says in chapter 11, verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. So they are scattered because of persecution, but persecution spearheads the witness to these places, and look where it also goes. But there are some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching, what, the Lord Jesus. They're not just going to Jews in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. They're going to everybody in Jerusalem, Judea, and to the ends of the earth. Again, these are not apostles. These are just Christians that have been scattered by the persecution. This is the place where they are first called Christians, Luke goes on to note there. That is, they were just normal witnesses. But in a sense, they're very abnormal because they have gone with power. Power of the Spirit to be witnesses wherever they are. And so in this beautiful story of redemption, Paul, who was once Saul and was persecuting them, and then that was what's part of what scattered them to this very place, that church that Christians had come to because they were scattered by Paul and others who were persecuting, Paul comes to that church and equips them and sends them. That church, he's the one who had a hand in scattering them. Now he equips them and the gospel continues to spread by the empowerment of the Spirit as these people go out as witnesses. And the New Testament is clear that that commission that was given in ch chapter 1, verse 8, to be witnesses is a commission that wasn't just for the apostles then. It, it was a commission for disciples, those who follow Jesus. It's a commission for the church. And it's not then simply just for individuals, although it is that. It's for the church. It's for a community. It's for disciples. It's a community project. Jesus commissions disciples as witnesses. He commissions the church as a witness. So you've heard already, we're, we're an Acts 29 church. And if you're thinking, like, what's Acts 29? Because we're in the book of Acts, and I went to 28, and then I skipped over, and, like, then it went to Romans, and I'm not seeing chapter 29 here so that's weird to be part of a church planning network that's part of doesn't even have a thing in the bible right well there's no Acts 29 in the bible the, the concept the idea is that the mission that god had started with his death 
burial, resurrection, and we're going to read through ascension, and sent the church on is a, is a commission that's for us, that's ongoing through the church as we go out and we are faithful witnesses to all that we've seen and heard, all that we know of Jesus. Acts 29, the very name, reminds us that God has not left this earth without witness, but has left this earth with witness in his people, the church, as individuals, but also together as a community project. This is our commission. It continues through the church. So the church, the gathered people of God, individuals, those who trust in Jesus, are a gathering people and a scattering people. One author says it this way, that the church is a local community of believers who gather for worship and scatter for witness. We are to be the witnesses to the ends of the earth. And you can think about it like Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, if you like, in terms of concentric circles. Think about where you live, your location, and, and your family, and your neighbors. Think about where you work, and your co-workers. Think about what you like to do, and how you can be a witness there. Think about areas of this world that we inhabit, what needs restoration, and how can we go there. But we are called to be witnesses in all of these places, to the ends of of the earth. Witness is not just something we do. It's not just simply an activity. It's who we are. It's our identity by the power of the Spirit. We are witnesses. We don't just do witnessing. We are witnesses. And so we go, we send, we, we pray as witnesses. We, we as a church and we individually, we, we've gone, we've put our feet to the ends of the earth. We, we go in partnership when we, when we give financially, when we pray for others. We're partnering with others. We're going. We're being a witness. We, we witness and are partners in prayer with these places, but we're to keep doing these things because it's who we are and because the time is not yet. And until the time is, that's, this is what Jesus has given to us. We, we don't get to know the time. That's not for us to know. What's for us to know is that we're to be witnesses. And that, that witness is an empowered witness. God is giving us power not to be superheroes, but to be faithful witnesses to Jesus Christ. And so what Jesus is doing with his disciples and what he does with all of his disciples is he's, he moves them outward. He, he turns their eyes outward. He, he moves them from their question about the restoration of this kingdom to this commission that is for the church as well. But we've jumped ahead in the story a bit, haven't we? And it's easy to do. Because there's, there's you know, like, man, power's coming. We're going to be witnesses. But did you notice when he promised that? We, we jumped over something really important. The promise that Jesus gives to the disciples is a future promise. You will receive. You will be. It's not yet. There's an event that happens before that that we have kind of gone over and we need to not go over. What's in between? Why is it not yet? Well, they're to await the Holy Spirit. But that new covenant promises awaits. In the book of John, John chapter 17, Jesus says this. John chapter 16, excuse me, verse 7. He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. I've always found that verse a little bit confusing. Do you, do you find it confusing? Thinking about this, like it's better for me to go away? Uh, Sunday school taught me better than that. If you get the question, is it better for Jesus to not be here or to be here? You're like, here. It's better for Jesus to be here. Is it better for Jesus to be gone? No. We want Jesus here, right? We want him to, you want him to stay or do you want him to leave? We want him to stay. That's, that's what we know, right? But he says, it's better that I go. Now, the Old Testament was a, a testament that was looking forward to a day when God's people 
wouldn't just receive a new word from God, but would receive new hearts. Where, where the words wouldn't be written on stone, it would be written on their hearts. Where they'd, they'd be given, uh, Ezekiel 36, Joel chapter 2, they'd be given God's spirit. That he would come and dwell in the midst of his people by his spirit. And that every one of them would know God. Now that's what the, the Old Testament is looking forward to. And, and Jesus was telling his disciples in John chapter 16 that, that those new covenant promises, th- those are coming and they are linked to his going. His going away and the fulfillment of these new covenant promises are linked together. His leaving would mean the sending of the Holy Spirit, which helps explain why Jesus says that it's better for him to go. We want to receive all the fullness of the promises that God has given the the new covenant promises of of knowing God of having the law written on our hearts of receiving his very spirit he says if I go I will send and they're linked together think then of the the goodness of this I think in in the gospels you hear this story of this gathering demoniac he's indwelled by a legion of demons and Jesus casts them out and then he sends this guy back to his home to to share the good news to be a witness to what Jesus has done but Jesus couldn't be with him the rest of his ministry, right? He, he went to minister somewhere else. The Syrophoenician woman, where they went up into that region, and she comes to him, and, and he speaks to her and, and heals her daughter. Like, he couldn't be with her uh, all the time, right? The Ethiopian that receives the gospel that, that Philip gives to him in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 8, like, Jesus couldn't be in all those places at the same time. He's a person, fully man. But if he sends his spirit, then his presence through his spirit will be with all those who trust in him all over. And so Jesus' bodily resurrection, his ascension, his exaltation mean the sending of that spirit, the fulfilling of new covenant promises where the law is not only written in our hearts, but we have new hearts and God's spirit dwells within us. God's presence then will be with all of his people and he is going to empower us rightly by his spirit wherever we are. And Jesus ties all that with his going away. It's a future promise in John, future to Acts here as he's speaking to them, but his going away nonetheless is necessary. He says, if I go, I will send him. If I don't go, the helper will not come. And so in Acts, we're we're 40 days after the resurrection. Jesus has been presenting himself. He's been teaching, and the Holy Spirit has not been sent because he's still there. He's not with the Syrophoenician woman, the Gadarene demoniac. He's not in Ethiopia. He is there with these disciples in this place. But after his commission, here's what happens, and he's getting ready to light the flame for the church to be witnesses all over. Verse 9, and when he'd said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Do you just think about the scene here? They're just watching Jesus, and a cloud just comes and swoops him up. And he just starts, I mean, levitating into heaven. I don't know how to describe that. I don't know that Luke knows how to do it. And he does it, all right, this is kind of a joke, but he does it with no oxygen mask. I'm not a scientist here, and I don't fly jets that go really high and fast. But I, I think at a certain altitude, you've, you've got to have more oxygen. If you climb Mount Everest, if you're not from that region, you probably got to have oxygen like jesus is just going up no oxygen mask he's he's raising into heaven um no space suit on or anything like that being uh, luke 24 describes it as him being carried up into heaven which is a reminder again that he doesn't need an oxygen mask or a space suit 
that heaven is not so much uh, uh, what we would consider in our ideas of space and time. It's a little bit beyond that. And heaven is God's place. And so this lifting up is Jesus transitioning from our place here on the earth to God's place, which is heaven. And this ascent is more than just a, a kind of a cloud shuttle takeoff launching into space where Jesus is going to float around, uh, reigning and ruling, floating for the rest of eternity. Notice, interestingly, that Luke points out clouds, which I think is a fun detail. But other than that, like, what are you getting at here, Luke, with the idea of these clouds? But we know more about this. It's not just that the clouds were in the sky, and so this seems like a convenient ride for Jesus to go out. Maybe it'll be an extra triumphant exit, so let's just do it with clouds. Think about the book of Exodus. Jesus, is God's presence is with his people. He leads them by cloud. He, he comes and he, he fills the, the tent of meaning with cloud. Think of Solomon's temple where they build this great temple and they dedicate it and it's, it's filled with this cloud so they can't even minister inside of it because this cloud is there with him. In other words, this cloud in a sense was a representation of heaven on earth. God coming down and meeting on earth. Here, it's Jesus in the cloud and the cloud is going up into heaven. So God's presence in the person of Jesus is being welcomed up into heaven, which fits another biblical image that we find in the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, it says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, and he was presented before him, and to him, this one like the son of man was given dominion. And glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. We're seeing Daniel chapter 7. Acts, Acts we're getting this picture from below. And it's, and it's as if it's Jesus' departure. Daniel is kind of, in a way, prophetically on the other side of this, and it's giving a picture from above, and it's of Jesus' arrival. And so we're seeing kind of two angles when we go to Daniel chapter 7, one from below and departure, one from above and arrival of this Jesus. And Luke chapter 24, 51, when it talks about that he is being taken up to heaven, it says the disciples worshiped. And I should say so if this is what you're seeing. Jesus is in front of you, and a cloud just takes him up. That would make you want to gaze. That's what they're said to be doing in, in Acts 1.10. They're, they're just gazing. What a sight. And in heaven, from the side of heaven, this is Jesus' enthronement. It's, it's Jesus being set as on the throne as the king on the hill. Psalm 2.6. God says, I'm, I'm setting my king on my holy hill. That's what's happening here. It's Psalm 110. It's God saying, Psalm 110, 1. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. It's, it's the arrival from heaven of the king of kings who's going to sit at the right hand of God. And one author says it well. Disappearing into the clouds was only half the, the story. He emerged on the other side into heaven as the king to whom all authority has been given. The ascension was Jesus' enthronement, his installation, his induction, his coronation. The disciples who are only seeing it from below, who are only seeing it as departure, worshiped and gazed. But this ascension helped lift the veil for them of Jesus' death and resurrection. 
think about what they went to do after this. Before this, they're asking, when are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And after, look what Peter is saying. Chapter 2, verse 32. Speaking of this foreseeing of David. And he says, this Jesus God raised up. And of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Notice the conviction in Peter's voice now. He was crucified and now he's enthroned. David didn't ascend, Jesus ascended, and now we are certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. He's the one that we've been waiting for. He is the one that all this was pointing to, and now you need to know him too. His name is Jesus. He is Lord and Christ, and you crucified him. Notice the conviction there, where before the ascension, there's all these questions, and they're needing Jesus to teach them further about the kingdom of God. But after this ascension, they go out and they start proclaiming boldly the, the message of the gospel with great conviction that he's both Lord and Christ, willing even to put their lives on the line for the sake of this news. Perhaps they were helped dramatically by what they saw and heard as Jesus was ascended, as he ascended into heaven, as he was lifted up by this cloud. And in verse 10 we read, that while they were gazing into the heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the heaven? Into heaven, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go. Now you might not have noticed this, but but Luke he wrote both the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, and so these this is these are his books, his works on the person and work of Jesus and the Acts of the apostles, and and he bookends the the Gospel with. With two men, two angels, right? From the tomb, they come to the tomb and, and they encounter two men. And now here, after that resurrection appearance from Jesus, they, they go to the end. After 40 days, and they're on this side of it, and they encounter two men as it's being lifted up. And I think Luke does intend to book in this to signal, right? You don't need to be watching for any more resurrection appearances this, this is the, the bookend of his appearance. Jesus is now ascended. He is now enthroned. He, he, is, he is the one who's, who's not going to come back until, until later. And, and it's in a different way than what he's been appearing to these last 40 days. In other words, Jesus' ascension then leads to their worship because they're seeing that this is the time that we've seen him lifted up and enthroned. This is now bookended those 40 days to where now we can listen to and expect those promises that he told us to look for. And so all of Jesus' disciples, when they look at that ascension, rightly worship. But the implications of Jesus' enthronement should land all disciples on their knees. The ascension, it helps convince that Jesus is the one that is sitting at God's right hand, reigning. Think about all that the disciples saw in the book of Acts as their friends, brothers, and sisters laid their lives down for the sake of the gospel. And they think, what in the world? I thought we were following the king, and yet all my friends are dying. But then they remember, he ascended. He is the king. He's sitting on his throne. Right? We can continue to be witnesses. That's the same for us today. We can look around in our dark world and think, like, things are messed up. They have gone off the rails. But we remember, Jesus ascended. 
He's enthroned. He's been coronated as the king of kings. He's going to sit at the right hand of God until all of his enemies are at his feet. Things seem to be off the rail, but Jesus ascended. He's on the throne as king. And this king who's ascended and is seating is one that we may not understand all that's happening and all that he's doing here on the earth, but he's trustworthy. And we know that he's trustworthy because he's also the king that died as a sacrifice for sins. Like, here's the king who gave of himself for the good of his people who would be in his kingdom. His ascension reminds that he's the king of kings, but it also reminds that he's this great high priest who holds office eternally. Think about Hebrews chapter 7. It tells us of the great high priest in verse 24. It says, he holds his priesthood permanently. Again, because he ascended, he holds it permanently because he continues forever consequently he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to god through him since he always lives to make intercession for them you don't have to wonder if i come to jesus is there going to be enough left for me no he's alive and he can save to the uttermost anybody from any tribe any language any nation who come to him because he lives and seats is seated at the right hand of god because he ascended For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. And as this great high priest forever, he saves to the uttermost. He is the one who the, the saints go to, their prayers will be heard because their priest is alive and loves them and is for them and is going to intercede for them as their great high priest for as long as he lives. And so their security is found in him we're as secure in christ as he is alive in heaven because we saw him ascended he seats seated man i'm gonna do that wrong every time he is seated at the right hand of god and it reminds us the saints they overcome how do they overcome revelation 12 11 gives this great little picture of how they overcome they overcome by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony their testimony it's the gospel that Jesus is the Lord, that he, was, that he was died, that he died, that he was buried, that he was raised, and that he appeared, and that he ascended. There's our testimony that we can be set free because the one that paid for our sins, he died, and he overcame death, and he ascended. Not only has his uh, payment been approved, but he's been enthroned on high. He can take care of us. He is the one who overcame the dead and seated is seated at the right hand of god he has not left us without then that word of testimony the witness that we have is that jesus is lord that the gospel is true it resounds throughout creation and the holy spirit whom he sends once he ascends opens up our eyes to the truth and to the glory of what this savior this lord this king has done And so we see Jesus' ascension is tied so closely to him being this great king, the king of kings, to him being this great high priest, and to him being the the better prophet whose word endures and continues to sustain his people wherever they are found. Jesus' ascension is vital. And in Acts, it's tied closely to his commission. Go be witnesses. And the ascended prophet, priest, king commissions us to do this empowers us by sending his spirit to do this this is why the worship of these disciples it it happens and it includes some gazing because we should be gazing at this ascended prophet priest king who is now enthroned but worship includes more than just gazing it includes an obedience 
don't know if you know this, but you should. Worship is not just about being in a room singing. Worship is life. Worship is everything that we do. Worship is what we honor and value most. And worship is ongoing all the time. So it's not just what happens when we're in a room singing. Worship is all the time. And worship, true worship to the one true living God, is found in obedience to Jesus' commands. So you're not worshiping if you're not obeying Jesus' commands. You can sing all you want, but if you're not in obedience to Christ, there's no worship. But if you do want to worship Jesus, there will be some singing, and there will absolutely be some obedience to him and what he has told us to do. There will be walking out these commands. Here, these men, as they watch Jesus go up, they turn to the disciples, and their question rouses the disciples to obedience. They say, why do you stand looking into heaven? And then they pour in the expectation. This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, he will come in the same way as you saw him go. And so, man, if, you, if you've followed us so far and you think the ascension is weird that this guy just gets lifted up into the clouds, you're really going to think it's weird when he comes again riding on a horse in the clouds. <laughs> and yet, this is the hope and the confidence and the expectation of Jesus' disciples that he not only went up, but he's going to come back again. And because this is true, the implication is, don't worry about that time. You know it's there. You get busy. He's commissioned you. He's sent you to be witnesses. He's empowered you. You are to be getting busy, not gazing. Go about his business. That's worship to the one true living God. And you do that always with one eye toward his return, an eye that isn't trying to know the exact time of his return, an eye that's saying, I want him to come back, but until he does, I'm diligent about his business. I'm expecting his return, but I'm hopeful and busy with his work right here and now. And believer, all through the New Testament, we are meant to see our lives as those in Christ. It's all over the New Testament, this in Christ language. And, and part of that means that there's, there's this union with Christ. If you put your faith in Jesus, you are one with him. You are with him. You are in him. It's always used, repeatedly used in the New Testament. Those who trust in Jesus, they share in what Jesus shares in. So we share in Jesus' Life, his perfect righteousness becomes ours. We share in his death, we have died, and we share in his resurrection, but we've been raised to walk in newness of life. We share also in his ascension. If he has ascended and been seated at God's right hand, we too will be lifted up to reign with him. And so knowing that we are in Christ and will share with all that is Christ's, Knowing that he has ascended brings us, as we go about his business on the earth, confidence, hope, expectation. So we get about it diligently because we know you can put me in the ground, but he was lifted up, not only raised from dead bodily, but he was then ascended into high to be in heaven, God's place forever. We have that same hope, that same expectation. And it's easy to overlook and underemphasize the ascension. It's easy to maybe see it as, as kind of that end mark of a sentence. And because it's Jesus, we, we definitely need to make it an exclamation mark, mark, right? But if we see it as something that can be overlooked, or that's not essential, that's not part of this entire thing, then, then we're missing it. If it's, if it's just an end point, 
then we maybe not just need to label it then as just an exclamation point even. Because here's what the end point is. Yeah, he ascended, but notice what the men gave them. He's going to come in the same way as you saw him go. So, so maybe there's an exclamation mark made with the ascension, but also dot, dot, dot. Until. And we should worship like those disciples that day, but we should also not be caught standing looking into heaven. We should hear these, this question rightly. Why do you stand looking? He's going to come just as you saw him go. Let's pray together. Let's pray. Jesus, we know that you didn't just ascend to some random place. It was very clear, God. It was very clear that you ascended to your throne. And it's also very clear that there is no other throne above that one. All authority has been given to you, Jesus. We have hope because of that truth. We thank you, God. We thank you that you are so patient with us. Because like your disciples, we too are so easily misguided. We are so easily led astray by those things that have not been revealed. And yet your patience overcomes, your grace, your mercy covers. You walk with us, you show us those things that you have revealed, you remind us of the mission that we're on, and you do that through your spirit who you left with us, God. We are so blessed to serve a God who is so good. Father, help us not to be easily distracted. Help us to be reminded constantly that you left us behind because you wanted us to be on mission. You wanted us to go and make disciples of all nations. It's so encouraging to hear about the three churches that have been planted in India, in Kuwait City, in St. Louis. Father, it is a privilege to partner with those who are on mission and those who especially who have given their lives full time completely for the mission of planting churches and evangelism and raising up new disciples. Lord, we pray for these three churches again that, that Father, your hand would just be on them, that you would show us, continue to show us ways that we can support them, remind us personally as we go back to our homes and our jobs to keep them in our hearts, lifted up in prayer. Jesus, we, we serve you. And you are king. And however imperfectly we do it, Lord, we know that you've promised to be with us. We know that you've promised to be with all those who call your name, call on your name. And so, Father, help us to be confident, to see our sin for what it is, to be humble when we are misled, to confess it, to turn, and to keep following and keep pursuing God. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.